welcome to the one more episode of the world according to Irina Sukarman, our very special series on global politics on the KJ Masterclass Live. Irina Sukarman, as you can see, she is on the screen. She is a US-based national security and human rights lawyer, as well as a renowned geopolitical analyst. Her writings and commentary have appeared in diverse US and international media and have been translated to over a dozen languages. Every fortnight in the world, according to Irina Shukerman, uh, we traverse the geopolitical landscape and delve into pressing international issues and gain insight from Irina's expert perspective. Welcome to the show once again, Irina. Thank you so much, and I'm happy to be back again. Thank you. Thank you. Several big topics uh, today, Irina, and a lot have happened in the last few days, two weeks. So let's take them one by one. This time, let's start with India. India-US 2 plus 2 dialogue recently happened. Let's touch upon that. Uh, indeed, it has uh, been so far the biggest, the most important one out of the series that um, uh, US and India have been conducting for the past several years. There are also other countries, and there are also new, new, new countries joining into this format, including uh, UK. Two plus two means essentially um, two counterparts from each country meeting to discuss foreign policy, defense relations commerce, economy, and other issues. And this time, U.S. and um, India touched on uh, such important issues as uh, critical minerals, cutting the exchange in cutting-edge uh, technologies that is actually progressing and moving forward. Um, uh, cooperation on issues such as student visas uh, for Indian nationals coming to the United States, and also um, issues uh, that uh, issues related to Indo-Pacific um, security, as well as uh, concerns and differences over matters such as India's relations with Russia and um, Indian-Russian defense relations, uh, the arms situation, why uh, India cannot simply uh, drop it as a partner. So all of these things came uh, uh, to the surface, and it was a very fruitful and important discussion. And hopefully, the next step will be the continuity of uh, building on these relations, building on um, on cooperation. And one of the most important outcomes uh, from an economic perspective is the discussion of a joint uh, development and not merely uh, production or trade uh, of uh, various. Um, uh, technologies and elements that we were talking about. So we are seeing more uh, integrated levels of economic cooperation. Right, right, Irena. And this is this was the fifth, you know, uh, uh, U.S.-India two plus two ministerial dialogue. So uh, where are we heading towards this sort of, you know, arrangement between the two countries? Uh, are there challenges also? differences also that they have not been able to look towards a, a very uh, intently and that needs to be taken care of? I think the biggest issue is the issue of trust building. I wouldn't say it's so much a challenge in the sense that it's, you know, uh, that there's some hostility that needs to overcome. It's the fact that the relationship has built being building relatively recently in in but at a very quick pace so with certain issues uh there it's just a matter of time and it's going to take 
time to build up these relations. For instance, in the area of security cooperation, in the area of arms trade, U.S. Um, obviously wants India to move, move away from dependency of Russian on Russian weapons. That's a critical issue, but the problem is, of course, India's relationship with Russia has been very long-standing, historic, and logistically speaking, it is not an easy thing to do because Russia actually controls some of the technologies uh, that uh, that are critical to India's infrastructure. India has also been looking to develop its own uh, industry. It has been diversifying um, its technologies, uh, buying more from from France, uh, from Israel and other countries, uh, U.S. will probably want to eventually transition into selling more of its technologies and more of its arms to India. But this is the trust part that I am talking about. I think this is the main obstacle to why those sales have not happened yet. I think it will take time before U.S. is ready to sell some of its more advanced um, weapons uh, to India. And of course, the question is, uh, whether the chicken or the egg should come first, whether India should first move away from working with Russia, or whether uh, whether US should first uh, sell it its technologies. It's a it's a complicated situation because of course uh, there is concern about American weapons falling into the wrong hands. On the other hand, uh, India cannot do without some of the, those critical weapons. So I think US is simply waiting until India gets enough weapons from other western countries or other allied countries that it is no longer quite as dependent and then us can complement them and start uh, providing more advanced technologies i think that is the main right now concern uh, there is also the fact that india in general is moving away uh, economically from china but it also takes time to decouple just as, as it will take us to decouple probably decades not not years it's a matter of decades but there is an interest in helping move that forward because india is becoming a very welcome destination for american industry and there is hope that the um that uh, this business friendly environment will accelerate and become uh, faster integrated with u.s businesses over time as well again this is not so much an obstacle or challenge uh, but it's just also a matter of building up capacity and simply a matter of uh, moving in the right direction over time. Right, right, Rina. You see, India has a lot of this two plus two ministerial dialogues, including Russia, Australia. We had just recently had that meeting. We already have mm -hmm. one with Japan. We have got with the UK. So. The world is moving more towards one-to-one -to -one talks, though in the two-plus-two format, and rather than talking less at the international level. So, is it the norm that is going to be happening globally much more? Uh, and and how does this is is different than the other formats? It means the global all these big forums will actually, you know, uh, there will be only much more for optics and less for actual talks. More talks will happen globally in this format. What, do, what is your understanding of this? I just want to understand, you know, the way global diplomacy will move forward with these sort of dialogues. Uh, well, to be honest, I think we are going through phases. I think there are 
periods of time and a lot of it depends on who is in uh, who is in power in any given country particularly in the us but also el elsewhere and there are different vast differences in preferences among administrations the obama administration was very much in favor of big format the trump administration was not the biden administration was very much initially in, in favor of big diplomacy but the polarization and the various conflicts created a lot of differences in among even nato countries much less anyone else uh, there's been a building up of new alliances and i think they discovered that logistically speaking smaller groups of countries and one and bilateral relations just make it easier to work out individual differences and to come to arrangements that faster however the, it is inevitable that some forms of uh, multilateral discussions will stay uh the quad for instance is a welcome format because you do need groups of countries coordinating among themselves against common threats and in favor of common um uh, problem solving but of course i think uh, the future is kind of in smaller regional alliances um rather than huge uh huge alliances I, I don't think very big groups of countries talking to that is efficient i think there are too many divergent interests and problems and issues and it's just very difficult to coordinate so i think most likely the future is going to be a mixture of bilateral and small multilateral gatherings bilaterals to coordinate individual relations and to work out those separate conversations that you need to have privately one-on-one -on -one, and multilateral to small multilateral to coordinate in a flexible uh format um the the issues that are joint of joint common interest and they are going to be based on common interests more and uh less on just strictly geographical locations and and uh in all sorts of uh previous um criteria that didn't really make much sense absolutely absolutely and now let's move on uh to the gaza what is happening there means uh, i just read uh statements from uh both the parties and both our parties we are reaching towards a solution uh, towards some sort of you know ceasefire or whatever they want to call it some agreement about hostage release palestinians under you know even and even israeli leadership and hamas leadership they both have come out with the with some positive statement about this then what was this all war about what is that that they have gotten now what is it that they have achieved now after the loss of so many lives what did this all this brinkmanship you know lead to this why couldn't they have talked to you from an outsider's perspective why couldn't they talk earlier on what what stops them to find a permanent solution to these things you know or is it is it after this again they will go back to fighting you know that after these great talks and great statements i am i want to understand for a lot of people in the in this part of the world wondering what is happening you know suddenly all this fight and suddenly all this talk of some breakthrough uh well first of all i think uh israel made it clear that the release of prisoners is not um in, is not going to put an end to the hostilities because uh israel's military goals have not been met yet the rock against stopped israel's 
Iran proxies are still coordinating and attacking Israeli targets. And the Hamas leadership has not been eliminated. They've killed a number of commanders and they've eliminated a lot of uh, foot soldiers and uh, infrastructure, but not nearly all of the tunnels and not any of the leading heads of uh, heads of this of these operations and attacks. So that is bound to continue. This particular pause is only to give relief to some of the most uh, vulnerable um, vulnerable. Um, uh, pre, uh, hostages, uh, women and children. Um, Hamas has been playing games the entire time. Every day there's a new condition. And uh, this four-day pause will also, for the, for that, from their perspective, is a huge victory because they will be, despite the fact that they abducted all these innocent people, they will still come out looking like heroes for releasing them and for getting some of their own people back. And their own people are all violent prisoners including women and underage minors. They've all been convicted of crimes, of terrorism. These are not innocent people that Israel abducted off the street in Gaza at all. These were people who tried to kill uh, Israelis and uh, tried to commit terrorist attacks. So Hamas will look great. Uh, they will, they're counting on this to uh, essentially gain even more support around the world. They one of the conditions is a four-day ceasefire uh, but uh, hamas has traditionally not been trusted uh, with this at all and uh, it will also allow their leaders to relocate from their uh, from their targeted areas of attack in the north to the south through the tunnels and keep them under from from away from danger zone and help them relocate among the uh, IDPs and Gaza residents who reside in the south. Another issue is that this will allow uh, they, the, one of the conditions was that Israel will, will bring 350 trucks of aid a day. Now, it seems like a noble gesture that everybody, a win-win for everyone involved. But let's recall what happened when Israel gave just a couple of trucks of fuel that was supposed to go to civilians uh, whose fuel was stolen by Hamas. Immediately, the level of rocket attacks was increased against Israel because Hamas simply confiscated that fuel for the war effort and nothing has changed. It did not go to the hospitals. Uh, the children in this hospital still had to be evacuated and normal function was not resumed because, uh, because Hamas quite uh, simply lies to the population. It, uh, it does, did not tell, inform everyone that it killed civilians in Israel. It claimed that Israel killed its own civilians. And it also lied to them and said that uh, this is already happening because Israel just decided to invade Gaza out of the blue and that they are defending uh, Gaza from these foreign invaders. And according to the poll, 74% of the civilian population in Gaza um, want Israel to be destroyed as a state. They, many of them don't like Hamas. They find it it corrupts, it's mismanaging, mismanaging um, the situation economically, it's cruel uh, to them, but they hate Israel more. So this this situation is by no means a victory for Israel. It's, no, it's nothing to celebrate because Israel is not getting all of its, all of its people back. And it's being seen as an equal exchange instead of an unconditional release of people abducted by a terrorist organization. So it is giving Hamas a level of legitimacy that only 
for its own people, but in the national, international community. And yes, people are asking, well, what's it all about if this is what they could have done a month ago? The, the problem is they couldn't because Hamas would not agree to anything remotely reasonable. They were asking for impossible things. And second, it's not, you know, there's a, Israel is facing a lot of pressure from the families, from uh, the United States, from the international community, and it's trying to get these innocent people as quickly as possible to prevent them from getting killed during the course of operation, while also pursuing uh, the defense of its security, the defense of its borders. It's an extremely complicated situation, and while I think it's you know uh, having saving lives is extremely important, and it should be absolutely. Um, pursued in in any reasonable manner we should not be celebrating hamas it's not doing anything heroic that it shouldn't it shouldn't have happened to begin with there shouldn't have been any people to release because it shouldn't be abducting people off the streets at all right right Irina. let's look at it from three points of view you one one is that you know israel if i understand military personnel will not be released so in a staggered manner Whatever the terms of agreement is, uh, some something will happen. Hostages will get released from both sides. Some, uh, you know, prisoners from the uh, uh, Palestinian prisoners from the Israel Israeli side, they'll be released, and hostages will be released on in a staggered manner, if I understand. But no military personnel. So who gets what here in terms of what does Correct. Hamas get apart? What does Israel get after this? And what does the world get out after this? Can they? All the political, other international players who have been speaking about it, US, Europe, and other players also, what do they get? Can the world, these people rest easy and get back to their work? Can the people, can people like me or not like me well, in this Israel part is of the world, what do we understand of this? Can we think one crisis is over or will it be again back to the same things after all these hostages are released? Because military personnel will still be under, you know, uh, uh, under host, uh, being hostage. Well, first of all, uh, Israel is only getting about 53 women and children back. And they are not getting all these people back at the same time. It's supposed to come in phases. And we, you know, Hamas has a history of lying and uh, and playing games. So I wouldn't hold my breath to for things to work out exactly as they arranged at the moment. Because they've come close to agreements previously, and then nothing happened. Uh, so I'm not I'm not really sure that it will work out the way it's predicted. I hope that it will, but we don't know until it's uh, until until it actually happens. And I I you know between uh, the exchange the exchange is supposed to start on Thursday, so there's a whole day for something to go terrible wrong either intentionally or by accident the other issue that's of grave concern is Qatar's role in all of this they could have they're the main funder one of the main funders of Hamas they could have led to this exact results a, a month ago uh, a few days after the operation uh, in the beginning they could have just said Hamas uh, to release all these people because Israel is not going to stop but they played along and uh, as a result all these people were suffering and several people that we know of got killed in the process and uh, their bodies were found so uh, they are getting credit completely undes un undeservedly for this operation that they prolonged 
without using the leverage that they could have and literally playing with Hamas games. Uh, so now this is not over. The negotiations over the military personnel will continue even if this exchange is actually uh, successful. The, though the prisoners uh, that Israel is releasing will probably go back to the field and they will probably be assisting Hamas in their operations in attacking Israel. Uh, Hamas even now is trying to infiltrate different points in Israel and to exploit border security issues. So they're not actually stopping and they've actually said on record that they will try, if they have an opportunity, they will try to do the same thing again. And Israel also has no reason to, to stop military operations. It just wants to get its innocent citizens back. And, and, you know, and if it means releasing some of the less dangerous prisoners by comparison, so be it and giving a short pause, because uh, it probably at the end of the day not change all that much in the grand scheme of things. Um, but, at the, but, but it's not going to solve any of the long-term security problems. Hamas still needs to be destroyed it's, uh, as a military and a political organization. It is still extremely dangerous and it continues fighting. It has not stopped firing. It has not stopped exploiting. And by the way, just because there is a ceasefire with Hamas doesn't mean that there is a ceasefire with Hezbollah, which has been ramping up its operations. Or the Houthis that just hijacked um, uh, the, the, uh, a ship, or for that matter, with the Iraqi and Syrian militias who are continuing to attack U.S. troops in the region. So. There is no ceasefire with any of those groups, so the war is not 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 anywhere over. Right, right, Elena. Let's move on from this uh, from the Gaza war to the uh, to the Ukraine Russia war. What is happening there? What uh, because lots of reports are there. It, it will uh, that U.S. will not be provide able more aid to Ukraine and. Ukraine, there are reports that Ukraine has gained some ground. Help us understand what exactly is happening in this war in another region. Uh, so far, there is uh, there's reports that uh, Ukraine aid will resume once the Republicans settle on the final budget towards the end of the year, which they have to, they need to come up with the budget uh, for the next year or go into shutdown. Uh, the same, there's also an issue with aid to Israel, which has been conditioned on the budget cuts from the from the US tax agency, the IRS, and uh, the Republicans are facing increasing discontent over that. The Israelis need weapons, uh, they need to recharge and other of their uh, defense systems. Uh, so this has been a growing problem. So far, U.S. is still providing both Ukraine and Israel with those uh, uh, weapons that have been in the pipeline and whatever. And the U.S. of course has uh, put the aid that it's expecting to share as close as possible to delivery points near Ukraine. So the moment it's approved, it it is good to go. It's not with the old aid that has been previously approved, but with new packages. And the U.S. is pushing for additional new packages, including a $100 million package for Ukraine. Meanwhile, on the ground, Russia, for the past two weeks, has focused its combat effort on Bakhmut, which is not all that strategically important, but it seems to be 
a psychological point for Russia. And Ukraine has changed its strategy. Its counteroffensive is ramping up speed because there is a concern that uh, the winter weather will make it very difficult to move forward. So it's looking to recapture as much territory as it can and has made progress to the tune of 42 miles in just a few uh, days, which is uh, a, a big improvement over the previous issues. It is breaking through Russian defenses and it has destroyed a lot of Russian weapons with uh, with HIMARS, with the American weapons, which it has received relatively recently compared to the rest of the counteroffensive in the preceding war. So this is not surprising. The more advanced weapons they receive, the easier it will be to fight back. Russia has been scrambling to buy back old equipment from countries like Egypt and others, where which it has sold to them in previous years. Now it's running out of weapons. Um, so it's it's facing uh, logistical difficulties. Right, right. So let's keep on watching these two wars. One is the Middle East and one is the uh, in, in Russia and Ukraine war. Let's move on from here to uh, to the U.S. Biden. He had been meeting a lot of people, including you know, including uh, Xi Jinping and, and South Korea and Japan. So. Help us understand uh, what 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 is happening there. What does this meeting with uh, all these top leaders, especially from the Indo-Pacific region, wh what does all this all mean? Well, the biggest issue for for Biden was to try to settle things down with China, um, and the general goal of this trilat this uh, this uh, trifecta of summits with Asian leaders was to move some sort of a economic and security um agreement forward um uh, so far with china that has been quite disappointing um many people have criticized biden for handing over a military victory to china by uh unilaterally uh, proposing um uh this ai related limitation on forces and and so on and nuclear and excluding ai from nuclear weapons development, China is very reluctant to enter such an agreement. So far, it only has agreed to continue talking about this issue, which is not surprising because, first of all, it has not been brought up previously. A second, there is an issue of uh, trust, and there's also an issue that you can't really uh, check the other the other countries' uh, progress in that whether they're actually abiding by their commitment. Um, so it's not really advantageous to China to commit to something like that. They can play this to appear um, conciliatory in agreeing to continue the discussions, but they will not necessarily agree to it at the end of the day. They've agreed to uh, discuss an issue related to fentanyl because China is a main exporter of fentanyl through the Mexican cartels into the U.S. But again, what leverage does U.S have to check whether china is actually abiding by its commitments if the results are negative china can always say that they tried but they're failing and that some things are just out of their control or that they're coming from some other direction so i don't really see how such things are enforceable um in terms of um, uh, economic cooperation there's been minor uh, uh, developments but they're mostly advantageous to china it has not committed to stopping the harassment of American companies. It certainly has not committed to any geopolit major geopolitical 
uh, breakthroughs concerning it hasn't changed its position on Taiwan or the Indo-Pacific. In fact, uh, very close to the day of the summit, it basically attacked the Philippines um, over territorial claims. It's looking to make headway into towards Indonesia and elsewhere. And uh, this is all not a very good situation, to put it mildly. And U.S. US actually reiterated it, its commitment to a one-China policy, which, in my opinion, was a mistake to even worded that way even if that's what the policy is because that sort of language does not bring confidence to taiwan and actually a recent poll says uh, showed that seven in ten taiwanese do not trust the united states so us is not is not gaining anything from that sort of rhetoric china has not suddenly um, decided to become best friends and taiwan now is losing trust you you need to us needs to figure out what its position actually is and realize that these policies are mutually they're not mutually compatible either it's going to recognize taiwan and fully back it or it has to um give up completely but then it will realize that it will have it will have a cost in, in its international standing it wants to continue doing with business with china it will never be able to do that as an equal partner because China simply does not view anybody as an equal partner, including the United States. So that's simply a, a philosophical recognition of reality that U.S. has to come to accept. Regarding uh, South Korea and Japan, it has been somewhat of a downer because the main point of those meetings were economic and it, no major breakthroughs for the U.S. came out of them. And I think um, there's a lot of distractions concerning um security measures right now north korea just notified japan about the launch of its new spy satellite unclear whether it was successful or not two previous attempts failed but it's also not a great development because it's you know north korea is becoming more active again and nobody wants to see that there's also an election coming up in taiwan the current administration is seeking to uh, to return they're much more aggressive although the vice president has strategically refrained from pushing for complete uh, open independence their opponents are much more conciliatory towards china and uh, they're looking to restart a dialogue with uh, china so it's not clear who will win it looks like it might be uh, the return of the incumbent administration because the mood in taiwan is not particularly open to china but we don't know china is looking to avoid direct aggression it's in their interest to back the opposition in taiwan and to get what they want to get through peaceful and uh, political uh, rather than military means if possible so i would not rule out some sort of a political meddling in the upcoming elections either right Right, Irina. And one more thing, why did Biden have to call the Chinese leadership a dictator? Because it, it, is hap it happened several times. And, and, and if it was a slip of you know, tongue, then it could be. So is there a, is there a, a diplomatic sort of a thing that they want to achieve? Is there a different sort of a message that the US leadership want to pass? This cannot be a slip of tongue if it's happening again and again help us understand this part especially when you have a leadership coming to your place 
and you are trying to look at you know much more closer relationship between the two nations how does this work i want to understand this sort of diplomacy for a lot of people who are not diplomats general people but who thought that you know there will be a much more cohesion between the two countries i think that's meant to send a message of strength and the fact that the us is realistic about who they're dealing with especially since china is remains uncompromising on main points of uh, security interest to to the us um it has purged its own ranks it has repeatedly uh, you know did very odd things with its senior officials foreign minister defense minister it's just been acting very erratically from the u.s perspective and um all of that seems to be some suit to the whim of one of the one leader who seems to be not listening to any criticism and how how these actions are seen as destabilizing not just by the u.s but the, but by the international community it does not bode well when you have sudden changes in the cabinet for no reason when people go missing for weeks at a time and the explanations for all of that are very unclear uh so i i i think this message was to send the fact that the u.s is not being naive especially since china is refusing to make any real serious concessions on any uh, major issues to reevaluate its um behavior it will be treated as an authoritarian regime uh, that is not following the will of its people or you know any sort of popular uh, consensus of democratic norms we're dealing with one guy who is calling the shots and it is what it is right right let's move on from there to bahrain the manama dialogue what do we understand of this it just concluded there what are the gains or what are the challenges what did we get out of this for the world. Well, normally the purpose of the Manama dialogue was to bring Israelis, Palestinians, and uh, the Middle East community under the economic umbrella to integrate them through economic and, and social rather than political means and to move away from the politicization of the Palestinian issues. But this dialogue came at the time of war. There's no avoiding politics. There's no getting around it. And uh, the big, the big breaking news from the summit was when the Bahraini Crown Prince essentially uh, condemned Hamas while also calling uh, and pushing for this uh, hostage situation to be resolved by the means that we are seeing them being resolved as we speak. So he seemed to be on board with this uh, plan that we are discussing. And he also made a very clear position of Bahrain regarding Hamas, and not for the first time. Uh, previously, um, Bahrain issued both its own individual statement and a joint statement with the U.S., um, condemning Hamas's actions and calling them barbaric and terrorist. And uh, there was a backlash from Hamas, which essentially insulted them and called them Arabs. Come and, and right now, it's a very clear message, which is divergent from the entire uh arab and muslim community in many respects i would say the closest to that um is egypt which has avoided directly naming israel in most uh recent comments by its minister it has described the situation and the impact it hopes to achieve and the results it is looking for but it has refrained from individually attacking israel by name so bahrain is very much in that same line and that is lies in sharp contrast with many of the other GCC and Middle Eastern and 
otherwise Islamic uh, governments, which have been repeatedly attacking Israel, calling uh, not just for this temporary ceasefire or hostage exchange, but for a complete end of the war, and have now collectively have gone to employ China at the BRICS summit in South Africa specifically for that purpose. There've also been calls for uh, for embargo for for um, uh, for an end to arms at that BRICS summit and and so forth. That is actually a meaningless comment because Israel does not import weapons from most of the international community. Mostly, it gets its weapons from from the United States, several European countries that are close allies and are not likely to listen to that sort of rhetoric to begin with. So it was a kind of a Middle Eastern virtue signaling to say, to sh to express symbolic outrage without having to actually do anything uh, that would harm their own interests. Uh, that's, that's what we're seeing. So Bahrain took a very clear moral position and I think that will send a message where it stands particularly to the united states not just to israel and to other countries i think bahrain is very much aligning itself with the western camp in that regard and i think that will be duly noted right right irina uh, a lot of talk a lot of meetings over uh middle east crisis a lot of talk also happened on ukraine still happening but on the sudan conflict everyone the international community is silent you know 800 sudanese civilians butchered why is it so what is happening in sudan for a person outside uh, they who who want to understand why all this killing who are the bad guys who are the good guys where do they want to go with whatever they are doing unfortunately they're not real real good guys in sudan war other than this civilians who are being uh, butchered because uh, what we're seeing is a war between two um, two generals one from the secular but uh, very bloodthirsty uh, Janjaweed the rapid uh, support forces that were introduced as a militia to take care of the government's dirty work in the past and they're efficient they're good at what they do better than the military but they are also completely ruthless and immoral um and they work with wagner they work uh, with several other with ue and Hafter for reasons of very of just one issue interest by those countries it, you know they're completely pragmatic considerations these are not real full-fledged alliances uh saf the government military is uh has included a lot of the old Bashir Islamist bodies, even though it did not start out that way. The whole point of the the coup, the revolution, the uprising was to put an end to Bashir and his complete overreach and human rights abuses. They're not respectful of human rights either. Um, these two groups are divided by territorial and tribal loyalties. There's also the resentment from the Western Sudanese Darfur region. Um, uh, Arab militias and other groups uh, comprising the RSF uh, loyalists um, at, at the fact that they've been used for years by the Eastern military and they have just now they're looking to to gain power and they're actually moving forward rather quickly not as quickly as one would hope it will take some time but they are making gains surprisingly uh, the army has superior means uh, they have more backing more funding 
somewhat more international legitimacy and they have um, better weapons but uh rsf has just better uh, fighters who have more experience in libya in yemen and other places and they've got a flow of mercenaries and assorted foreign fighters from chad and other nearby countries so uh this is just it's um uh, it's going in that direction um where it will end is unclear probably not uh, not uh, not anytime soon because both parties are being funded and they're being backed by various uh, different states. But in the meantime, it's created a huge humanitarian disaster. There are people literally starving there. Uh, there's been a displacement of 10 million Sudanese uh, civilians. Humanitarian aid is not reaching people. There's also skirmishes with South, South Sudan over disputed um territories and oil uh so it's a it's a complete mess but uh it's does not so far have a much wider regional or international impact compared to for instance israel gaza war or ukraine and russia they, they don't have major uh economic or uh, international uh, investments or uh, or influences for that reason it's just simply taking a back burner compared to those two other conflicts that just have more stakeholders who are more active and are more interested and there's more uh impact of uh, military impact trade impact uh economic impact um social impact from and more money for campaigns and media and, and uh, more people directly affected um internationally so unfortunately it's being ignored there's no real policy by anybody um in the u.s there's also no real uh policy because there's just not enough resources and um pressuring um the other for, uh, geopolitical actors who are fueling those the conflict with the additional weapons and provisions um could backfire because then those actors would not be cooperative in other matters that are higher priority for the u.s so we are seeing a very tragic situation unfortunately that is um you know uh, that we are distracted from it's not getting enough coverage it's not getting enough support it's not and it's no less tragic than what's happening in gaza um there are more people affected uh actually significantly more it's 45 million people in in a very vast territory but because of the way things are people are just not that interested Right, right. Very unfortunate. Hope, you know, these sort of things get equal attention and this gets sorted. This is not good from any any way you, you see it. Any conflict is, it, in my personal opinion, I don't really like to see any bloodbath happening. But then that is all a utopian idea. Let's move away from the utopian idea to the real ground world. And there it is. Uh, former Russian general Sviridov, he's find, been found dead. Mysterious circumstances. Along with the lady, I don't know, people call that it was his wife. I am not sure. You'll be able to tell. Why this killing? Why not? Why now? What is happening? You know, what, 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 what is this all about? Uh, anyone, he was, see, he, he, he I guess, criticized uh, Russian President Putin some time back. So is it related yes, to that? That's not, not, not where it is mentioned. Help us understand this. Yes, he has been critical of uh, Russia's... Um 
strategy in Ukraine. He basically regards this whole idea and the way it was executed as a complete failure, um, not because he's such a humanitarian, but he just doesn't believe it was well executed or thought out, and he thought it was a complete disaster for the Russian military forces. And the payback came in time. He was first removed from power, but it was not sufficient. Um, we have seen dozens and dozens of mysterious deaths of uh, close Putin associates and former friends and allies, including some who have been critical of, at various points in time of the decision-making uh, process regarding the war in Ukraine. And uh, a variety of people ranging from uh, doctors in provinces to uh, Luke Oil and other energy executives to generals and the military, other military personnel, uh, ended up meeting their deaths uh, in a way that you know clearly indicates untimely demise, not from natural uh, causes. So it's very clearly an intimidation tactic and a purge uh, by Putin and his close associates to to prevent any sort of criticism or disagreement with his action. And of course, the downside uh, of that, besides apparent obvious. Uh, ruthless authoritarianism is that anyone who's professional and who can give good advice uh, it gets removed permanently and uh, therefore um, Putin and his close uh, crew end up being surrounded by um, yes men uh, who are only capable of supporting whatever crazy idea that comes to, to their heads and uh, that does not bode well the success of anything of any endeavors you know from that side it it, it never works well this is what uh, stalin used to do it ended up bringing him into world war ii because he disregarded intelligence and then he disregarded um advice from many people and it, it ends up when the more authoritarian uh somebody is the less inclined there to listen to criticism they see it as a form of disloyalty and betrayal they become paranoid that any sort of resp positive response to criticism could make them look weak and uh, they end up ultimately shooting themselves in the foot which is i think very much the direction russia is going to right now right right thank you for your perspective on that irina now let's move on to this uh 57 attacks on u.s forces in iraq and syria by iran <laughs> forces what 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 does this mean? With little response, is US US now becoming much more non-violent or something? Help us understand why these attacks and why the US, uh, you know, with little response. Well, it's actually been already over sixty attacks uh, between uh, October seventh and now, and there's been over you know uh, over hundred and. Uh, 100 plus uh, this year, uh, aside from that. But this period has been very intense. Finally, you know, and there's been many, many injuries and uh, even deaths among this personnel. Finally, after the latest attack uh, today, U.S. finally responded with a, uh, with a deadly blow to some of the Iran-backed groups. Whether that will finally put an end to these attacks remains to be seen but this is but there has been actually a very uh, um, polarized response within the biden administration as to what to do uh earlier uh, a number of these um 
entities have been put on the sanctions list. To be honest, I'm not entirely sure what that does because most of them will never travel to the United States and I doubt that they have assets either in the US or in any Western country. They probably, um, all, their, all their money is probably in some non-Western banking systems. So I don't know whether sanctioning them is anything more than a symbolic response, but there's been a great deal of internal disagreement over whether to respond and risk escalation and also uh what kind of a signal that will send to iran because us is still trying to pursue some sort of a an agreement i'm not entirely sure about what at this point um but others believed that we need some level of deterrence because otherwise it will just keep happening so finally after you know this latest and very brazen attack uh i think that that faction won out and we will see if there's going to be if that will uh, put an end to things because up until now the only responses were attacks on empty warehouses in syria which certainly didn't do anything either in syria or in iraq it did not prevent further escalation right right let's look at you know the u.s china relationship now from the business perspective also you know china has received uh, U.S. equipment to make chips despite restrictions. And so what does that mean for the semiconductor wars? And also, let's when we are talking of China, China's uh, plans for Navy base in Oman this, uh, that has come out. So what, has, what does that mean uh, in terms of geopolitics, navigation in the Middle East? Let's touch these two topics here. Well, uh... The, China has been making breakthroughs um, with the chip production domestically, not as quickly as it could with the full cooperation, but it it has it has personnel that's trained um, in that production. It has the elements, the raw materials necessary for production. It has stolen a great deal of technology, and has previously cooperated with other countries until it was frozen out and by the way these restrictions were not a hundred percent complete and they were also gradual so none of that came at the same time uh now we are seeing that some countries are uh, essentially circumventing sanctions and providing china with what it needs to continue the production and uh it's been making some progress it still needs some of the most advanced know-how um i think it's trying to infiltrate the industries uh outside its own borders where that is possible but for now uh it will take whatever it can get and try to use it against the west and i think that's why us and other partners should be much more aggressive in ensuring that none of this equipment makes its way um uh to china and penalizing companies or individuals who are involved in this sort of smuggling when it comes to the base uh, astonishingly enough, um, China has already completed the agreement towards the building of that uh, base in Oman, which puts it in a very sensitive position um, with respect to Red Sea security, the strategically important Strait of Hormuz, where one-fifth of international oil and gas trade passes, and Babel uh, Mandab, another sensitive area, which is a very narrow street where cookies uh, have been abducting and attacking ships. Uh, so having China <laughs> with this access to the Middle East, right where the U.S. base is located, right where uh, many international Western 
navies have um, have uh, put their forces is creating a very uh, very explosive problematic situation the fact that the us has only been informed about it recently and have taken no action to disrupt this process by putting pressure on Oman to prevent them from this uh, agreement it speaks uh, does not speak well for the u.s um, political will, will or whatever whatever caused this process to happen previously when china was planning a second uh, military naval base in africa after djibouti u.s was able to disrupt this process by putting pressure on the relevant countries the fact that they were not able or willing to do so in this case um shows that the u.s uh political um influence in the middle east is waning and we are facing a very dangerous situation right right let's move on to india once again about this diplomat report mysterious death of accused khalistani extremist so it's talked about an assassination allegedly an assassination uh, you know program how do you see that what is this report about what why why do they think india will have some sort of a program like this what is your understanding of this whole report well the report talks about a number of Palestinian terrorists around the world not just the guy who uh, was um, who met his uh, end in canada and caused this whole uproar between india and canada but apparently a number of such people from these networks have been found dead under strange circumstances in other countries which presumes that somebody that they didn't all die coincidentally of natural causes that they haven't all contracted some pandemic <coughs> but that somebody has been killing them and who who would have an interest in their deaths if not in it's a logical conclusion and it's also logical to conclude that most intelligence um agencies around the world may or may not have a formal assassination program but they certainly willing to take actions when they feel that they're when there's a cause for it that there is some sort of a security issue and somebody needs to be eliminated so i don't know whether india has a formal program of that sort or not i do think that they may find it in the interest to go after people who cause them problems if the countries in question are not willing to cooperate in um uh in uh, uh in legal in um basically deporting them by legal means or um going through other legal forms of cooperation to to put any anyone involved in extremism on trial so uh on the one hand that expedites the problem and uh, uh you don't have to deal with uh decades of hearings in in canada or wherever on the other hand um you know country that can cause additional issue, conflicts over sovereignty issues it's certainly uh you certainly don't want to end up in a situation where that's a norm to assassinate anyone suspected of extremism because frankly you could get the wrong person uh somebody the you know somebody could uh, uh be mistaken somebody could be set up or framed by their colleagues and not actually be presenting a danger it and it could uh also invite re reciprocal assassinations of your own uh of your own personnel by the other side or by somebody some other 
third party. So that's obviously not an ideal scenario. But let's look at, let's zoom out from whether or not these people are actually being assassinated and by India or by some guns for hire or whoever. And look, let's look what's actually going on. What's actually going on is that the situation is actually, the situation with Khalistan and extremism has been spiraling out of control for years. Conventional means of dealing with it internally have apparently failed because a lot of the masterminds do seem to re reside, just like Hamas operatives uh, who are pulling, calling the shot in Gaza have reside outside Gaza. They reside in Turkey and Qatar. And what did Prime Minister Netanyahu say at the recent hearing? Uh, in, in my opinion, he shouldn't have said it out loud, but the, his position was clear that anyone who resides anywhere and is con connected to Hamas will be eliminated, whether they're in Qatar or somewhere else. So this is a prime minister of a country openly acknowledging their course of action once they have decided that Hamas needs to be eliminated as an organization. And if India is taking a similar position regarding Khalistan and, and considers um, that particular network of operatives of a comparable of comparable threat as what Hamas presents to Israel, can people really blame them if they meet the same type of end? Now, whether or not Khalistan uh, is comparable to Hamas is another discussion. I think I think it it, it is a worthy discussion, understanding who they are, how they operate, and whether they can be reasoned with by any other means. But if, in theory, if they are in fact comparable to Hamas and, and they end up getting killed in the process and uh, other countries do nothing to put an end to the activity and harbor them, knowing that they are planning operations in India, uh, I really think you can't blame uh, India too much if they do undertake su such action. Any more than anyone can, can uh, blame Israel if they do go after uh, terrorists somewhere else. Absolutely. One, one more thing, you know, I wanted to understand, curious to understand, is there was already a war of words between India and Canada over the allegations that they made earlier on. So, why, and then mm -hmm. they quoted the five and that they have. So, why, why have they not come out with more, you know, uh, so-called evidence again in the other cases. Uh, has, did diplomat mention anything about any other evidence that they have uh, that these people may have had if they are alleging in, or or this sort of a story is coming out in the open? Quite simply, this is an embarrassing situation for everybody. I think I think if they did have evidence, even if they did have such evidence. Um, I think it's customary not to reveal that, if, depending on what methods we used to detect what happened. So that could be one reason why they're not doing it. Another reason is that they simply don't want the situation to get out of hand even more than they do. Thirdly, they may have evidence, but it's not complete. They may have something that could be completed by other means. They could have other reasons in consideration uh, that are political in nature. They, uh, all of that could be true, but the bottom line is remains the same. Why was Canada giving asylum to such people in the first place? And also, why hasn't there been yet a scheduled discussion about how to move, go forward in um, addressing potential security claims and concerns by India? After all, uh, these Palestinian um, extremists have been responsible for acts of aggression inside Canada against Canadian citizens as well. So there is actually a point of common ground that I think should be 
uh, room for fruitful dialogue rather than uh, rather than uh, a breakdown in diplomatic relations. I think it's an opportunity personally to avoid problems. Absolutely, absolutely. There is there, there are a lot of questions like earlier on. Let's see what this all means. As of now, I understand that you know that India is a very peaceful nation. And in terms of diplomacy, also, we always try to maintain good relations with everyone. But then, as I said, we do not know how uh, how how governments operate. But then governments can also look at, you know, the wider aspects of uh, sovereignty and, and if other countries are harboring this. But it's a curious thing. You know, I would like to read that report myself, you know, after learning from you, Irina. So let's move on to that from that war of words between India and Canada to the war of words between Netanyahu and Turkey. So what is this all about? Where is this going to uh, going? Is the, will this lead to, uh, you know, break in diplomatic relations between these two countries? Why are they fighting? Well, you know, Erdogan has escalated his rhetoric. Uh, he is sending a flotilla of uh, a thousand boats, uh, allegedly with humanitarian aid to Gaza. But we have seen that the last time he did that in 2010, it was not a humanitarian but a military operation that um, has ended with a brutal attack on Israeli naval officers who were inspecting those boats for weapons. And uh, it led to a complete breakdown in relations for, between the countries for 12 years, which were only recently resumed. And now we're back to the same situation. Um, Erdogan repeatedly not only refused to condemn Hamas for anything that happened, but he attacked Israel as a terrorist state, which led to Netanyahu's um, response. He also is threatening to um, uh, break, uh, break diplomatic relations altogether, and both countries recalled each other's respective ambassadors already. So the, uh, these relations have been downgraded, but not yet completely. Uh, uh, depleted and uh, for Turkey on the one hand they don't want to uh, lose the economic and tourist advantage from Israel but on the other hand for Erdogan it's a great opportunity to rile up not only his base but to put himself out as a leader of Islamists around the, the entire Muslim world and he is in competition uh, with, the, with the Arab states over this matter so for him it's a point of pride even if it has economic downturns and Israel's economy right now is suffering greatly from the war anyway. So Turkey may find that this point is the best time to do so if they are going to do exactly that. We are seeing that South Africa has very much moved in the direction with the parliament voting to shut down the Israeli embassy uh, altogether. So Turkey may may see that once that the momentum is in that direction and it will not be seen as anything particularly radical should they do the same and satisfy this street fire that's ongoing and uh to put pressure um on israel uh in this particular way right and there right, has been know. no pushback by the way from the west against this rhetoric so there are no consequences as well right right so let, let's now, you know, talk about something happening in Spain there in terms of the whole Catalonian uh, 
such um, movement there we have seen a lot of talk about this you know catalonian movement and spain and all that and suddenly now we read about this uh, spanish prime minister and ruling parties engage in dialogue with separatist leaders in brussels so is it is it going to be a solution for this long long uh, difficult moment for both both the sides how do we look at it you know even though uh, spanish judge is looking you know investigating some of these people for terrorism how does this look like a solution or uh, uh, after a long time um it looks actually really bad for the ruling parties because the ruling parties in spain are quite socialist they're quite radical and they've been losing political ground with the right-wing parties increasingly gaining seats in the parliament so they are expecting a complete defeat in the next elections and in order to avoid it they're cutting the their putting aside all principles, all the high-minded rhetoric about sovereignty that led to the expulsion of the Pushamont, the, the separatist leader, who has been taking money from the Russians for this activity. There's been various scandals involving Russian intelligence agencies and so public information, not in dispute. They are not only willing, went to Brussels to negotiate with him and to bring his party and have them after this, separatist you know claims ironically join the government but they're willing to consider full amnesty to uh to him and his associates after all these spy scandals and all these attacks on spanish government and intelligence by these people accusing them of spyware abuses and so forth so essentially everybody you know these people who have been um pushing these separatists are carbon they've achieved completely victory due to the weakness and corruption of these parties who in order to stay in power are willing to sacrifice all these security and sovereignty concerns um so it looks really bad and you and there there have been mass mass demonstrations in spain against this but no but they've been uh, underreported among all the coverage of the pro hamas rallies these uh internal domestic matters which have caused mass uh, uh, j uh just complete shock among the population they have been uh, not supported at all right right now let's let's uh we have already discussed quite a lot of issues you know across the world arena one more issue is now you know osama bin laden seems to have come back to you know come back to life with a lot of love for osama bin laden on TikTok, what is this whole idea of thing about what video has been banned we can't we don't we can't watch that video here in india TikTok is banned here since 2020 so tell us about this why there is suddenly a lot of talk about TikTok and osama bin Laden. well i don't personally believe in coincidences as you know TikTok is a uh, belongs uh is produced by a company that has links to the chinese government it's been used as a weapon against the West in many ways, propaganda, targeting, biometrics, um, keystrokes, uh, pushing stupid challenges that cause addiction and harm among children and teenagers. Um, but uh, this, this, this particular um, uh, incident that involved the sudden release of Osama bin Laden's letter, which attacked the West and which became popular among young people who have no idea who he even is or what really happened who uh, were born or grew up after 9 11 
uh, and who are completely ignorant and easily manipulated. This, I'm, I believe this was a targeted attack designed to achieve this particular impact among influencers. And of course, once it was, once the damage was done, TikTok banned that particular video, but the damage was done. And now that's all anyone is talking about it. And besides that particular video, there's many, a lot of other propaganda circulating and supposedly TikTok is fighting it, but it's already too late. And mainstream media in China is also spreading pro-Hamas and anti-Semitic content and attacking the United States day and night, supposedly they toned it down for the, uh, for the summit in the US, but the main point is still there. Right. So does that, that just mean it, it will strengthen the case for banning TikTok in the US? Sorry, what? Yes, Irina, if you... Yeah. So does this mean that this mm -hmm. will strengthen the case for, you know, TikTok getting banned in the US? Because uh, this is something I... a lot of people may not want to see it. Well, a hundred million Americans have downloaded TikTok, but honestly, I think people it's being used as a weapon, and the same type of content is not available inside China. So clearly, it's aimed at Western countries, aimed at manipulation, and it's a clearly a tool. Um, you know, I, I I think there are plenty of American and other com companies that can fill in the gap if TikTok were ceased to exist, and I think we'd be all be better off if that happened. That's my personal opinion. Absolutely, absolutely. There is a lot of happening in the world. That is a lot of you know things that we covered, and we will come back back again. You know, again in the next two weeks to bring more about what has happened in the world. You will be able to help us understand all those things, analyze all those things, and bring it to the world for us in the world, uh, according to Irina Superman. Thank you so much indeed for joining us in this episode. Thank you. Thank you so much.